Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick. Earlier this month, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham announced her selection for the Secretary of the New Mexico Department of Health, Dr. Tracy Collins, who has served as Dean of the UNM College of Population Health since 2019. Dr. Collins steps in as the state is seeing an explosion of coronavirus cases that threaten to overwhelm the healthcare system. She brings in expertise in health disparities that have been exacerbated by the global pandemic. Collins says her interest in healthcare began when she was young. I was born in the Bay Area. I lived in Fremont and Oakland for the first 13 years of my life. And then my dad, he worked for General Motors. At the time, they were opening a new plant in Oklahoma City. So he moved us to Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, just before I started high school. And so that was a major change for me as far as moving from California to Oklahoma. I can imagine. (laughs) Exactly. I went from a place with, you know, having diverse friends, African-American, Latino, Native American, um, Asian-American, and then suddenly it's like you're black or white in Oklahoma. Things have changed since then, but when we moved there, it was really a drastic change socially. And so because of that, I went from being like a cheerleader, outgoing to just studying because I was otherwise not enjoying the social interactions. So as I began to study more, I then developed a a group of friends, a little network, and we would provide sort of comfort to each other um, about navigating being in Oklahoma and understanding how to survive. And with that, you know, I began to enjoy chemistry. And I talked with my chemistry instructor. Now I'm in high school. I'm like, what can I do with chemistry? I mean, what kind of careers are there? He's like, well, you could become a chemist. And he says, or you could go to med school. And I was thinking, hmm, that could be an option for me. And so that was one sort of this might be what you think about doing moment. Another for me was when my mother had a major illness and she wasn't getting good care. They thought that she was drug seeking. And as an African-American woman, she kept showing up with abdominal pain. Well, as it turns out, She decided that because she couldn't get good care in Oklahoma, that she was going to go stay with her older sister, who was the head nurse at a hospital in Monroe, Louisiana, which is where my mom is from. But on her flight to go to Louisiana to be with my aunt, during the layover, people noticed that she looked a little dusky and she was moaning and groaning and that she just didn't look right. So they had the ambulance come and pick her up and she had emergency surgery So she had a small bowel obstruction from something that's a rare or slow-growing tumor called a carcinoid. And that was the reason for multiple trips to the ED to try and get help. And they thought she was drug-seeking when, in fact, she did have something underlying that was causing her pain. And had they listened to her, the outcome could have been different. But we were basically forced to drive back and forth every weekend from Oklahoma City to Denton, Texas, That's where her layover was as she tried to get down to Monroe um, to see her because she had about six surgeries and it took her about three months to recover. And then that was the initial recovery. Once she got back to Oklahoma, it was still a prolonged course, but she began to get better. But it was just for me, I thought, if if I ever become a physician, I'm going to do my best to listen to my patients. And how did you decide to move into healthcare policy? 
Yeah, so as I was finishing up my internal medicine residency in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I really enjoyed seeing patients, but I really wanted to have an impact on how we deliver care. So I talked with some folks and I learned about a general medicine fellowship. And at the time there were two big programs, Johns Hopkins and Harvard. I was fortunate to be accepted into both programs and decided that I loved Boston. So I decided to go to Harvard. And so that experience gave me exposure to how we determine what are efficacious treatments. So getting a master's in public health and then learning more about educating the future workforce and continuing to see patients. And so that was my initial move towards policy. And so as I grew my research career and moved from Boston to Houston to Minnesota, and then down to Wichita, Kansas to chair a department of preventive medicine and public health, it was during my time there that I decided I wanted to further my education a bit more. And I learned of the program at Dartmouth, the Master in Healthcare Delivery Science, which is a combination of an MBA and a health policy degree. And so that was my sort of indoctrination or my exposure and training to do even more, even though my Harvard degree was excellent. My degree as an MD from OU, University of Oklahoma, was very good. I think that was solid training but the policy piece was kind of missing. And so I feel like now that I've had training at Dartmouth, um, I'm right now, I'm prepared to really begin to look at policy issues and make a difference in that way. Your story about your mother is uh, infuriating and tragic. So she was treated essentially as a drug addict when she had something actually wrong with her. As you moved through Uh, getting your degree and moving into practicing medicine and then into policy, how much did you see that your own individual experience was replicated systemically? Unfortunately, I saw it more than I wanted to. I mean, good examples of that are patients with sickle cell disease who are in crisis and they're in pain. And oftentimes they have to really struggle to receive pain meds because they're perceived as seeking drugs. And there are studies out there that have highlighted that your race and to some extent your gender will influence how a physician might perceive you when you're in pain and how likely they are to actually prescribe um, narcotics um, to help you. Now we are on the other side of this whole opioid epidemic and there are issues there, but minority patients in general, persons from communities of color are typically perceived as drug-seeking when, in fact, they actually have pain. How did you migrate into population health? Was that all of a piece of what you were focusing on with your degrees? It was. You know, as I've done research looking at um, peripheral artery disease, exercise, getting people to walk to improve their lower extremity function and how far they can walk, you know, one of the pieces of that is to understand what are some of the barriers that patients might experience to getting good exercise, to eating right. And it's really those upstream factors, those social determinants of health that really influence health outcomes. You know, we think about healthcare delivery and it's very important, but it's really about 20% of that formula that really determines health outcomes. At least 60% is really influenced by the social determinants of health. So as I was at Dartmouth finishing up my master's in healthcare delivery science, I started to think about, you know, preventive medicine is important, but population health and really making a difference in the social determinants of health 
is important to me and it's going to matter for me if I'm going to make a difference as a clinician, as a public health practitioner. So that's how I got interested in population health because I see it as a partnership between public health and healthcare delivery. Give us a definition of population health. I shouldn't assume people know what that is. So population health really is the um, intersection of multiple disciplines, typically public health and healthcare delivery, to improve the outcomes of diverse communities, to really understand for various communities throughout any region, what are the driving factors that are influencing your health and what do we need to do to improve health outcomes? And what, so you pull in um, social work, you pull in um, health care delivery, MDs, health professionals, you pull in public health practitioners, and we design the interventions. We look at the data that influences how we understand your health, and then we come up with interventions to improve health outcomes. So population health is really a multidisciplinary approach to improving the health and health, health outcomes of diverse communities. Population health is really how we're managing this pandemic right now. And we could do better, but it's really, you see public health, the messaging about what we need to do, the distancing, the hand washing, um, the mask, how that can help to reduce the burden on the healthcare system. So it's a partnership. What brought you to the University of New Mexico? So I learned of the position to serve as dean for the College of Population Health. And UNM, very progressive under the leadership of Deborah Hellitzer and many others, started this college in 2016. It's the second such college of its kind in the U.S. and it's the first to offer a bachelor's program in population health. So as I was thinking about what would be next for me in my career, moving from a chair of a department, I was really looking at dean positions and I was very interested in population health. So when I learned of this position, I thought, wow, I definitely want to go and learn more about that opportunity. And so that drew me here. And how have you helped guide the COVID work at UNM during the pandemic? So the college we have, we're fortunate to have some really great epidemiologists. So many of them were engaged early on back in April and May with reviewing the data and giving information to the state to understand what needed to be done to help us contain the virus. Me personally, I've been working on making sure that we are addressing the needs of the university around reopening and keeping students safe, students and faculty and employees. So understanding what we need to do around testing, contact tracing, and making sure that we have an environment that can quickly react and actually proactively prevent exposure to COVID-19 for our students in residence halls and employees. The pandemic has had a disproportionate impact on communities of color and low-income communities where people either can't work remotely or they lost jobs in the economic turmoil. How do you plan to guide the COVID response in the state with those realities in mind? Yeah, we have to balance keeping people safe with keeping the economy going and providing a safety net to support the most vulnerable. So when we think about frontline workers, now we have healthcare workers, we have persons in housekeeping, we have grocery store workers. We really need to see about keeping them safe so that they can work. So making sure they have the proper mask, that they can cover their eyes, 
that we're providing them with what they need to remain safe while they're still working. So I think both things need to happen. It's really safety, but also keeping the economy going. Because as you've mentioned, it's communities of color that have been hit hardest by this. So when we think about N95s, we definitely want to make sure our healthcare workers have those. But there are other workers who also would benefit from having those, restaurant workers and the face shields or goggles, because the virus can be, you know, you can contact it through your eyes. So it's not just your nose and mouth. You also need to protect your eyes. And New Mexico was really doing well for a long time in controlling the virus spread. Now we're seeing record case numbers that threaten to overwhelm our healthcare system. Do you have a sense of why this is happening and how much DOH or other state agencies can help bring it back under control? Yes. You know, as we look at the data, um, you've got the shopping, you've got private gatherings, and most recently looking at sort of dining indoors. And so what we have to do is figure out, okay, let's at least try and contain this for at least the next two weeks and then figure out how we can open up businesses, other entities safely while keeping people from contracting this. So the private gatherings, if we could get people, I know this is so difficult, we're all tired of COVID, but if people could hang on through this holiday season and refrain from having large gatherings and you know keep minimize the number of people to your home circle the people you live with anyway that's going to help us and just minimizing exposure don't get out and about unless you have to unless you have a doctor's appointment and if you can do that via telephone if you can um, and wearing your mask distancing good ventilation in your home all of these things can help There has been a real challenge in this pandemic with public health messaging, and there's so much misinformation. Do you have some thoughts about how we can more effectively message for people to understand how serious this is? I've been reading stories over the last week of, you know, these poor nurses in ICUs treating dying patients who are either full of regret that they didn't take this seriously or they're just angry that it's real. And I just... Something's not working and I don't know what we can do. You know, it's an excellent point. And it almost requires sitting down with the people who are convinced that this is not real and having a dialogue with them. Because, you know, we have the messaging out there. If you drive down the highway, there's messaging about, you know, wear a mask, six feet apart at least. People need to realize this virus is serious We've lost nearly a quarter million Americans. And even if you've not died from this, you could have long-term complications. It's not a benign situation. Now, the people who recover, good for them, but that's not everyone. There are people who really suffer and then losing a loved one. So you're right. We definitely need to continue to identify ways of getting the naysayers engaged and helping them understand, you know, we really need to come together on this. And if you're not worried about your health, I'm sure you're worried about your pocketbook. So at the very least, the more we can do to wear masks, to de-densify you know, space where people are in, where it's enclosed, the better off we'll be. And that's for everyone. This is not ideological. This is not about a certain political party. COVID could care less about who you are or what you think. It's there and it's real. Um, One of my colleagues recently needed to go get a test and I 
over the past two months have gotten tests. And it had been fairly easy to register the same day, go to a DOH site, get your results in about 24 hours. She had to drive all the way to Santa Fe last week to get a test. I'm wondering if that's happening, what we can do to ensure that we have robust testing and contact tracing. I think we're in a good place right now with testing. But, you know, as the cases grow, our needs are going to grow. And so I think with the new administration coming in, although we really don't want to wait till January, um, more work is going to have to happen. Um, I actually have, have been tested twice and I was fortunate to get my results within 24 hours and I didn't have to wait. So obviously we're in a situation right now where more people are being tested and the needs are growing and we're going to have to adjust to meet those needs for sure. What are some of the other things you hope to work on as DOH secretary? There are issues around cannabis. There are issues around sites, long-term care facilities. There are a lot of needs that I'm getting up to speed on. And as I move into the office, I will know more of what I need to focus on. Fortunately, I have people who've been there for quite some time now who I can work with, some really great people who will be working to get me up to speed on the things that we need to address. There's border health issues. Um, There's a lot to do, and it's kind of diverse. I'm Megan Kamrick, and this is University Showcase on KUNM. That was Dr. Tracy Collins. She's dean of the UNM College of Population Health, and in December, she will become secretary of the New Mexico Department of Health. The pandemic is also the subject of a new course offered this fall by Professor Chris Duvall, chair of the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies. He says it offers a perfect teachable moment. The pandemic is something that, you know, profoundly affects all of us. And you know, being able to step back and gaining, uh, you know, gain a broader understanding of what is the big picture that's happening here that is causing this to be so disruptive for all of us. Um, how can we learn from this and how can we do things differently in the future, you know, is something that, you know, that we can all learn from this. And the, you know, the course participates not just in our geography degree programs, But we also have a global and national security studies program, and it's part of that as well. And, you know, for people who are going into the, you know, security fields, um, this is a hugely teachable moment, thinking about how decisions are or are not made and, you know, what produces security and what threatens security. You know, so we're able to look at everything from, you know, national security to human security and health security. What kind of systemic disruptions do you think we will see going into the future that you guys will be exploring? We're nearing the end of the semester, and that's where we're going to start looking at uh, this coming week, the last two weeks of the semester. And, you know, for me and my role as a university professor, something that I always think of is that the changes that we've had to make since March, right, are all you know, a lot of them are at least lined up with changes that were anticipated for the next 10 to 15 years, right? The shift to remote learning and things like that, that we've all had to scramble to do. And aspects of that have been really bumpy, um, but aspects of it have gone, you know, remarkably well. And there's things that I've learned that I'll continue doing, I think, um, such as having, you know, Zoom office hours that students don't have to come and find my office to talk with me. And more broadly in society, a lot of people are finding that there's some efficiencies that we can we can discover, you know, um, medical appointments uh, through video conference, you know, telemedicine um, has been very successful. 
I'm most concerned, though, about kind of the long-term economic consequences, both as an outcome of, you know, financial, economic, monetary type changes during this year. I mean, people have lost jobs, they've lost income, they've lost businesses, but also the potential impacts of, you know, educational shortcomings for for all the students who've been affected by um, closures and uh, remote schooling. And that, you know, is at a university level down to an elementary school level. Um, You know, I have children. I see that their schooling is different. What is that going to mean down the road? Um, We next fall are kind of looking towards having a class of students start at UNM who have had, you know, a year, close to a year and a half of online schooling. What does that mean for their training? Um, Are they going to struggle in college? Things like that. These are going to have long-term consequences that that I don't know what they are, but they'll certainly impact us for, for years to come, you know. It's been challenging for students because a lot of them are, you know, are directly affected. I mean, who have had family members um, with COVID, who've lost jobs, who've, it's, it's been, you know, kind of an intense thing for a lot of the students. Have you all uh, in the course looked at historic precedents and what we can learn from those? Yeah, we looked a little bit at the 1918 pandemic, you know, just kind of as a kind of a historical setting for for kind of pandemic thought over the last century. We looked also at a number of other what are called zoonotic diseases. So, you know, some of these have been pandemic or epidemic, um, but a lot of them are very localized or relatively localized, you know, things like uh, sleeping sickness in Africa or or Lyme disease in, in, in North America, you know, things like that. Part of what we've done is in the, at the end of 2019, in, in the course of 2019, there was a number of pandemic preparedness plans that were, were made by, you know, the, the White House to private organizations and, you know, a number of different stakeholders. And we read those and looked at those in particular. And in the planning that was in place, um, you know, a year ago, there were four pandemics really that were looked at a lot, and we consider those the SARS in 2002 and three, the uh, avian flu in 2009, the uh, Ebola in 2014, and MERS in 2011, 2012. And so we looked at those a little bit uh, as well to kind of just understand how the, the experiences of at those times affected what people have done in 2020. Um, you know, and SARS in 2002 is, is probably the most instructive. Why is that? Well, because it, it started in China. Um, and, you know, the Chinese government learned from the response, the world learned from the response. And, and the Chinese government acted very differently in early 2020 than they did with respect to the SARS outbreak in, in 2002 and three. You know, one viewpoint has been that, you know, China concealed everything in early 2020. And so therefore there was not a response, an appropriate response globally. Um, that's pretty clearly not true, um, simply based on understanding, you know, China's response to the original SARS epidemic and what they learned from it. There is was a very narrow instance of, a, you know, doctor in, in Wuhan basically being told to not say anything. But that was the the like local level, you know, Communist Party basically, and they tried to hide what was going on. But once broader level of authorities, you know, understood what was going on, they 
they opened up and they made evidence available very quickly. They, you know, had the genome of, of the virus available by the end of January and things like that. And so, I mean, obviously there's always things that could have been done differently and, you know, that guy should have been listened to, but in the big picture, compared to 2002, 2003, um, China responded very differently. What are you hoping students will take away from this course? What I'm hoping is that they take away the ability to not just say, well, I think this should have happened, but say, well, actually, we know that this study was done by the World Health Organization that shows that these events happened and were responded to in this way, and therefore it didn't make an effective global response to what was going on. So they can have some you know, actual source material, I guess, if you will, to, to support what they think or what they hear around them or challenge. But then I also want them to get kind of some of the basic ideas of thinking about what makes human security right? You know, have freedom from fear, freedom from want, and how, you know, illnesses can produce those threats, but also how, you know, governments and civil society can reduce those threats as well. We live in an eminently teachable moment here, and the U.S. response has been, you know, kind of textbook for bad response in trying to see why that's been the case, rather than just, you know, yelling in the political chaos that we we sometimes live in, being able to say, well, this is the reason why. This is the economic theory for how pandemics work and the trade-off between, you know, health and economics, for instance. We can understand this. You know, people have studied this for years and there's really good understanding of, you know, these sort of variables and these theories that underlie the responses that people have or haven't done within the, the pandemic. Did you find that some of the students had certain theories or ideas that were debunked as they drilled down in your course? Yeah, I mean, the the idea that there is a trade-off between economy and health, for instance, that, that it's either this or that is not founded in economic theory, right? There is a trade-off, but you have to kind of understand the short versus the long-term you know, a lot of the political arguments are easily debunkable. You know, the idea that economy and public health are just a either or is really inaccurate. And a lot of the, you know, arguments or presentations that have been made in political context are really focused on the immediate short term. And that kind of sacrifices the long term, right? Mm -hmm. Both in terms of health and economics. And so those sort of you know, arguments that come up in political context, you know, are, are easy to debunk. And, I, you know, I just mentioned the, the SARS experience in 2002 that, you know, provides us a clear understanding of how governments have responded in the past as a basis for evaluating why or why might or might not respond in a certain way in the present. You know, so there's the political arguments. Many of them have been really poorly founded. I was curious what their final projects were. Did you ask them to, like, you know, solve the pandemic or 
<laughs> well, there's there's two things. There's graduate students and undergraduate students in the course, and so they have slightly different things they're doing. The graduate students, I've asked them to compare three different countries to kind of assess the responses and experiences of those countries and how that helps us, you know, understand the processes at hand. And and so they're making comparisons based on the wealth of the country and the political structures and things like that. Now, the whole class, they're going to start uh, tomorrow a group project where they basically need to develop a policy proposal of, you know, what does the U.S. need to do for the, you know, the short, medium, long term to reduce the impacts of the current pandemic. And so that means, you know, potentially everything from improving testing in January or vaccine distribution in January to business loans or education loans five or 10 years from now to kind of mitigate the impacts that the people will still be feeling at that point in time. That was Chris Duvall, chair of the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies at UNM. You can find this episode and all our episodes at KUNM.org. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. I'm Megan Kamrick. Thanks for listening to University Showcase. Mm-hmm.